Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! In this interview with guest host Eric Cajola, Professor Greta Krippner tells the story of how the American economy became so dominated by the finance industry in recent decades. In her book, Capitalizing on Crisis, Dr. Krippner reveals how government regulators took steps to support credit markets and speculative investment, even to the point of ensuring an eventual collapse such as the one experienced in 2008. She discusses the ongoing relationship between Wall Street and Main Street and some of the steps that might be taken to prevent another financial disaster. Hi, I'm Greta Krippner, and welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So your work has explored issues around the economy, politics, and finance, which are often the domain of political scientists and economists. So what sparked your interest in, in raising a sociological discussion about these topics? Uh, well, I think, first of all, I've I've uh, I've never felt that we should, as sociologists, sever off the economy, politics, and finance, and, and leave those to other other disciplines. And in particular, I think uh, economic issues are, are too important and too central. The things that we care about as sociologists to to leave to um, economists, in particular, who have a very constraining set of theoretical tools and and models. So uh, I'm strongly in favor of us going right into those those um, you know seemingly very technical topics uh, with respect to my uh, particular interest in finance I can speak more specifically to that um, and and the, the particular work that I did around finance uh, really came out of, of, of a very uh, specific set of questions I had as a graduate student in the I hate to say mid-1990s uh, which concerned uh, at the time debates around uh, what was new or novel about about capitalism in in the post 70s period so there was a kind of uh, narrative about the evolution of of the post-war economy that went from this period of really uh, evenly spread growth um, era where we had a kind of so-called accord between labor and capital uh, and a certain amount of stability um, for for working families and somehow this all uh, eroded and fell apart, and and the the shift was understood as occurring roughly in the, in the 70s at some point, sort of shift from golden age to leaden age, as as it was talked about then. Um, I wanted to understand what had occurred in the 70s and how to understand what those changes meant and what was driving them. And I think at the time there was a lot of interest in in labor markets, and I myself started out working. Uh, doing research on on labor markets and the restructuring of labor markets, uh, at some point I I came to um, the realization through reading uh, works by people like David Harvey and Giovanni Arrighi that if there was something that was really novel about capitalism in the post 70s period, uh, understanding that novelty, the key to that novelty was likely to lie in understanding transformations in finance and financial markets, and so that's. Um, you know, really what my work grew out of, the work that I subsequently did on financialization, was an attempt to um, think about how to understand the novelty of the post-70s period with respect to um, prior decades of of historical development. Mm -hmm. So much is made in the media and public dialogue about the increasing size and power of finance, um, which you suggest has been a growing trend since the 1970s. 
So can you help us understand what the financialization of our economy means for American workers and families? Uh, well, I think it, it means at least two things that are that are salient. One is um, there's, of course, a direct relationship between uh, the financialization of the economy and uh, growing wage and income inequality. Uh, and that's not something that I um, develop in my book or elaborate uh, document in my book, but others have subsequently showed that link. It's a, a pretty intuitive link because if you think about, um, you know, if, if, if one if one vector is, um, you know, in, increasing share prices, uh, that that happens, you know, if there's a, a stock market bubble that, that occurs with financialization. Um, ownership of, of uh, stock assets is skewed towards the wealthy. So that's one really easy way to get, uh, you know, increased inequality in, in an economy that's undergoing financialization. There's also um, the outsized compensation packages that, you know, happen in, in the financial sector. So, you know, there, there are really clear linkages between these developments and, and inequality. Um, even more concerning, I think, is a second uh, impact this has on uh, workers and families, which is uh, the the uh, issue of the relationship of financialization to to risk and risk bearing. Um, financialized economies are economies that are very volatile, so there's a great deal of, of volatility, and you know we we've seen that o over the last several decades. You know, we have these periods of uh, riding high and then a crash. Um, you know, the sort of cyclical volatility that that uh, goes hand in hand with financialization, and that uh, I think is uh, you know perhaps even more troubling than inequality. The fact that we we live in an environment in which um, you know there there's increased volatility and um, we, in the meantime, have stripped back institutions that historically have uh, protected uh, workers and families from volatility. So I, I think we are all uh, much more exposed in, in this environment, and that's, uh, you know, that's very troubling. Mm -hmm. And is there really this trade-off or split between so-called Wall Street and Main Street? Uh, well, I would say yes and no to that question. Uh, yes, in the sense that I just described. I mean, as far as the benefits of of financialization and who really, uh, you know, who 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 really is um, benefiting from these developments. I mean, those 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 benefits are skewed, um, as we've just been discussing, uh, toward the affluent. Um, but in another sense, no. And and uh, I think one of the one of the things that I uh, did in the book was to, in some way, step away from a kind of narrow interest group story about, um, you know, this, you know, merely being um, the project of financial elites, and and instead to look at the way in which uh, financialization uh, transformed the economic and social environment for all of us, and in particular, uh, living in an economy in which um, credit is free flowing is a fundamentally different kind of political economy than one in which credit is subject to controls. And that change, I think, really shifted um, interests around this question in ways that don't line up with a kind of Wall Street versus Main Street. Um, just to use a really uh, simple example, uh, everybody likes it when they can get a mortgage with uh, almost no down payment. I mean, that's something that uh, is a very popular policy that is uh, a, a byproduct of an environment in which credit is is unregulated. Uh, so in a sense, uh, one of the 
kind of interesting political issues around financialization is this does subject people to increased volatility, increased risk. At the same time, there uh, there is no political constituency for financial regulation. Nobody really wants credit to be regulated because that means that um, you know some people will be denied credit. Um, and you know, as a society, then we have to decide what are the criteria by which we determine who gets access to a limited amount of credit, and those are, are, are difficult decisions politically. So, uh, you know, I think there's a way in which financialization actually created shared interests, although arguably not in the general interest in some broader sense, uh, shared interests in, in the promotion of policies that, that uh, were part of creating an environment conducive to financialization. So in your book, uh, Capitalism on Crisis, capitalizing on crisis, um, you argue that the growth in, of finance was not simply the result of right the free market, but was largely due to government policies that were in response to political, social, and economic crisis. So how did government actions promote financialization of the economy? Uh, well, I focus on three different uh, policies in, in the book, and I'll, I'll just be relatively brief here. Um, so the, the three that I identify as important, and these are, I think, not by any means exhaustive. Um, there are other things that were going on that are also part of the story, but um, attention and, and energy was limited. So um, I, I focus on three that, that I uh, felt were most, most critical. So the first um, government action or government policy that created an environment uh, conducive to the turn to finance was the removal of essentially interest rate controls. So um, this was a, a deregulation of domestic financial markets that essentially freed credit from from constraint. So um, you know it's, it's a little bit of a technical story, but essentially um, we went from an environment in which credit was strictly rationed, in which you know you were likely when you went to your uh, as likely when you went to your mortgage broker to be turned down for a loan as accepted. Uh, in, in which um, interest rates really were constraining on 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 people's um, um, actually not interest rates themselves, but the amount of credit in the economy was was constraining on on people's uh, economic behavior to uh, a deregulated environment where that was no no longer the case, where essentially uh, credit was available as long as people were willing to pay the going rate, and they mostly were willing. So. Uh, we have an environment in which uh, essentially people are not turned down when they come looking for loans, which is, a, as I mentioned a, a minute ago, a, a really different kind of environment to live on. So that's that's one uh, one policy change. The second was um, the government, uh, the the uh, the federal government, uh, particularly under Reagan, uh, really turned toward global financial markets, essentially uh, welcomed in and actually actively. Um, sought after global capital investors to finance uh, our large and growing deficits um, in, in the 1980s. This was another source of uh, injecting capital essentially into the U.S. economy, also part of creating an environment in which uh, credit was easily available and, and, and expanding uh, very quickly, uh, faster than the rate of growth of the economy. Uh, the third policy change were uh, changes in monetary policy, which, uh, again, it's very uh, somewhat technical topic, but essentially what, what the end result of those changes 
uh, were was was um, a, fe a Federal Reserve policy beginning with monetarism and and uh, leading through developments, uh, you know, through the 2000s, that where the the Federal Reserve was in a sense. Um, the way I describe it in the book is essentially following, following rather than leading the market. There's a kind of passivity, um, uh, ironically, to the way policies get implemented. Uh, and this also was part and parcel of allowing um, the, um, you know, credit to expand and, and, and markets to, uh, asset markets to inflate. Um, so in all, in all three domains, essentially, the theme is you see policies that, um, the government is attempting to, let's say, respond to a particular set of situation, a particular set of um, uh, problems. They end up putting in pol putting policies in place that have the effect of expanding credit. Um, and once you've expanded credit, you are on your way to financialization. Uh, um, um, an economy in which credit is flowing freely is an economy in which you will have um, asset price inflation in one market or another, usually serial asset price inflations. So, um, you know, and again, the, the, the purpose of, of the government pursuing these policies was not by any means to create financialization. It was um, solving much more local sets of problems that then had this inadvertent effect of, of expanding credit. And, and that's, that's essentially the story that the book tells, that, that these were, um, you know, these policies were inadvertent responses to other uh, other kinds of problems, largely uh, problems that had to do with emerging distributional conflicts that were um, not not directly resolvable. Uh, and so this is this is kind of the story that the, the book tells. Mm -hmm. So in your new new work explores the individual individualization of risk and the changing norms around who is responsible for paying risks. So how do you see these changes related to the broader financialization uh, of the economy? Uh, well, as I was already alluding to in, in response to an earlier question, I think they're they're very directly related. So, uh, and in fact, um, the one project grows very much out of the other. Uh, so again, in, in a financialized economy, um, you have a, a, an economy which is subject to a great deal of volatility. Uh, and at the same time, um, we're living in a historical uh, moment when we have um, rolled back, uh, dismantled many of the institutions that uh, in, in prior historical periods have protected people from risk, provided some buffer against, against the market. Uh, so, you know, we have a situation where uh, individuals are increasingly exposed to risk and at the same time uh, a kind of discourse around the individualization of risk, the notion that, uh, you know, everybody's sort of responsive, sort of what Jacob Hacker uh, calls the personal responsibility crusade. So, I mean, I think these are, um, I mean, I think given uh, this being an outcome of financialization, uh, I'm very interested in understanding um, these discourses around risk and these understandings of risk and understanding their historical evolution and why it now seems so naturalized in a sense to think about um, risk in this way that each individual is essentially paying the cost, bearing the cost of their own risk. Um, historically, that was a contested idea, and there were alternative ways of thinking about who was bearing risk um, that surfaced and, and were viable viable contenders to the view that wins out. So, um, you know, uh, I'm interested 
um, in exploring the evolution of that um, of that view and and understanding again how it how it kind of wins out. And how was the 2008 housing crisis related to these processes of financialization and risk? Uh, well, I think it's it's a direct outcome of them. And <laughs> naturally, I wasn't I wasn't happy about the crisis, but I was I was finishing the book at the time the crisis was breaking, and it did it did provide a kind of uh, end to the narrative arc that I was um, that that was already sort of constructed in the book. So in that sense, I mean, if one is ever happy about a, a, a catastrophic economic event, I guess um, it, you know, it, it did provide an ending to the book. I mean, it's it's an outgrowth of them in the sense that, again, what what we saw with the crisis was, um, you know, intense volatility in an economy in which credit isn't subject to any constraint. And, you know, this played out in in the housing market um, in in the 2000s, just as it had played out in the stock market in the 1990s. But the, the story is the same. I mean, when you when when credit is not subject to constraint in an economy, it will fuel asset price bubbles. And if you uh, attempt to uh, squeeze one part of the economy, it, that that credit will move to another part, and so that's why this this uh, th these asset price bubbles, uh, you know, they tend to move from market to market. They tend to be serial in nature, and you know, so the the 2008 crisis was, um, you know, a unfolding of this process, um, just as um, you know, uh, one might have expected, right? Um, and so, you know, it's. It's not. Uh, it's not. It's not at all surprising, and I think it it, it fits in uh, very well with with um, you know what we've already been seeing developing in the economy for several decades. I mean, the the period since the '80s, um, when you have this financial deregulation and expansion of credit, is is essentially a story of one economic crisis after another, um, which was not the case um, in the the preceding decades when finance was regulated. So there's there's a clear relationship between regulating financial markets and controlling credit and uh, the uh, occurrence or not occurrence of, of financial financial crises. So lastly, in the past five years, social movements such as Occupy have arisen in, in response to this rising inequality, student debt, and anger about the excess of Wall Street. Uh, meanwhile, politicians have made some attempts to regulate the housing and mortgage market limit financial speculation. So do you think these efforts have been effective um, or have the chance to influence our government's relationship with the financial industry? Well, I think, and this is, I'll say this as, as someone who is primarily a historical sociologist, so I like to look over, over long periods of time. Um, I think it's probably too soon to tell is, is, is the short answer to that question. Um, I mean, the implementation of, of Dodd-Frank is still, as we speak, unfolding. I mean, all of, uh, you know, this law um, requires lots of rulemaking bodies to, to essentially spell out exactly how the law will be, will be uh, put into practice, and that process is still incomplete. Um, it's also, uh, I think, important to note that the financial industry has done everything in its power to uh, be obstructionist in that process and to roll back, um, you know, what the law seeks to accomplish. And, um, you know, it's likely that they have 
had some uh, some impact uh, in terms of blunting uh, the force of the law. So that's the cause for worry. Uh, on the flip side, it did. Uh, I recently uh, read, uh, I believe it was in the New York Times. You know, there's, um, uh, you know, the, the the restrictions in the law that um, place constraints on the amount of uh, capital that financial institutions can have at risk has apparently been fairly effective in um, limiting risk-taking activity by those uh, financial institutions and in, in limiting profits. And that's uh, precisely what, uh, you know, what we would want to have come out of this legislation is some kind of uh, uh, tamping down of this, you know, really frenetic uh, risk-taking behavior chasing after after profits in the financial sector. I mean, you don't need to, to Put a stop to it, but you need to slow it down. Um, so, um, as as Polani uh, astutely noted in the Great Transformation, it's as much the uh, rate of change as its direction that's important in terms of managing economic dislocation. And I think that applies very well to uh, thinking about regulating the financial sector. Um, or as uh, economist uh, James Tobin famously said, the idea is to throw sand in the wheels. And so it, it seems like. Uh, some of the regulations that have been put in place have done that. They have thrown sand in the wheels. They have limited risk taking. They are uh, reducing profits in this sector. So, I mean, that's the cause for optimism. But, you know, as, as to how it all unfolds, I think um, we will have to wait a while to have um, a better sense of that. Great. Well, Greta Krippner, thank you for stopping by Office Hours. Thank you. Appreciate it.